Open God's holy word to Philippians chapter 2. Our focus will be on 2, 5 through 8. I'll be reading 1, 27 through 2, 11. Philippians 1, 27 through 2, 11. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy... By being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility. Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. and Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, eternal, infinite, existing perfectly, and blessedly, in and of yourself, needing nothing, immutable, and yet with us, Emmanuel. Father, you're worthy of all praise. Our triune God, you're worthy of all praise. By virtue of who you are. Father, how much more so as your redeemed people. In light of what you've done. In Christ. And now who your son. Eternally is as the God man. Father. 
Father, let us come and adore Him this morning. Grant us grace and mercy to glimpse something of the glory of Christ's humiliation. In His name we ask this, Amen. Today we take up a most holy text. All of Scripture is God's holy word. But it's as though with this portion of Philippians we come to a most holy place. One feels that they stumble upon it, something like Moses did the burning bush. Or perhaps better than saying we stumble upon such a text, we get caught up into our text, as Paul does. You, you see Paul do this not infrequently in his letters. He's writing along about some subject matter and then it's as though he becomes enraptured by it. This is the locus classicus, the classic location, the definitive text uh, concerning Christology in the Scriptures. And you don't come to it, we don't come to the subject matter directly. It's not Paul's concern to deal with Christology at this point. He hasn't taken up the subject matter. He stumbles onto it and then gets caught up into it. He's writing to the Philippians about unity, humility, and their concern for one another. And then all of a sudden we're caught up with him into the mystery of the person of Christ. And this is the glorious danger that all true discussions of discipleship and ethics are liable to. One should feel always that they're on the verge, if they're really dealing scripturally with living the Christian life, one should feel they're on the verge of tipping into the Trinity or being caught up into Christology, a danger that could just pounce on them at any moment. And it's a danger that should be indulged, relished, welcomed. The Scotch-born theologian commenting on these Versus John Murray, his introduction to, a, to his sermon on these verses says, The first mystery of being is the mystery of the Trinity. This is not a mystery that came to be. The revelation of this mystery came to be, for all revelation is temporal, given to temporal creatures. But the truth of this mystery is eternal. It is of God's eternal being in three persons. The second mystery is that of the incarnation. This is the mystery of godliness, the mystery of Christianity. It is a mystery that came to be. One that had a beginning in history. The Son of God became in time what, eternally, what He was eternally not. He did not cease to be what He eternally was, but He began to be what He was not. It is with this mystery the text deals. This is the glorious mystery that we stumble into. 
And we should do so gladly. But we must do so cautiously. Like Moses, we've come to holy ground. And so, as it were, we need to take off our shoes. We, are, we need to tread with reverence as we examine the person of Christ. There's mystery here. It's mystery. But let us labor to ponder it both deeply and rightly. The majority of the heresies of the early church, the major heresies that were dealt with by the early creeds, the most vile heresies that have plagued the church and that continue to haunt her still, go wrong at precisely this point. All the early creeds of Christendom were crafted in response to heresies concerning the Trinity and the person of Christ. And whenever you take up one of those, you really are necessarily dealing with the other. They're they're inseparable in that way. And so, Ebionism denied the pre-existence of Christ. Adoptionism, likewise, said that the man... Jesus Christ was adopted by the Father as the Son of God at some point following His birth. Docetism, in contrast to both of these, denied not Jesus' humanity, uh, excuse me, not His divinity, but denied His humanity saying that Jesus just appeared to be a man. Arianism is probably the most popular of all Christological heresies. The brainchild of Arius, an elder at Alexandria in the 3rd century. Arius taught that Christ was a created being. The first and supreme created being, but nonetheless a created being, not of the same substance of the Father, but of similar substance. Apollinarianism originated with Apollinaris, bishop of Laodicea in the 4th century. And he taught that Jesus had a human body, but not a human spirit or a human mind. We might call this the android Jesus theory. As though there was just the shell of a human body that Jesus downloaded his spirit into. Took up residence inside. Nestorianism may or may not have been the teaching of Nestorius, a preacher at Antioch in the 5th century. That's uncertain. But what is certain is that his name became associated with the heresy that said that Jesus is comprised of two persons. A divine person and a human person. could call this the possessed Jesus theory. Eutychianism or monophysitism is something of the opposite. It teaches that Jesus has one nature, neither human nor divine, but something new mashed together from both both of those. I call this the Frankenstein Christ. Now all these heresies deny either Jesus' divinity or His humanity, or some are so brazen as to deny both. 
And the Athanasian Creed minces no words concerning how critical our belief at this point is. The final section of the Creed says, Further, it is necessary to everlasting salvation that he also believe rightly the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. For the right faith is that we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is God and man. God of the substance of the Father, begotten before the world, and man of the substance with his mother, born in the world. Perfect God and perfect man, of a reasonable soul and human flesh subsisting, equal to the Father as touching his Godhead, and inferior to the Father as touching his manhood, who although he is God and man, Yet he is not two, but one Christ. One, not by conversion of the Godhead into flesh, but by taking of that manhood into God. One altogether, not by confusion of substance, but by unity of person. For as the reasonable soul and flesh is is one man, so God and man is one Christ, who suffered for our salvation, descended into hell, rose again the third day from the dead, He ascended into heaven. He sits at the right hand of the Father, God Almighty. From thence He shall come to judge the quick and the dead, at whose coming all men shall rise again with their bodies and shall give account of their own works. And they that have done good shall go into life everlasting, and they that have done evil into everlasting fire. This is the Catholic faith, which except a man believe faithfully, he cannot be saved. And if that sounds extreme to you, well, listen to the Apostle John and what he wrote in 1 John 4, 2 and 3. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now is in the world already. To deny these things is not simply damning, it is Antichrist. In order to be saved, you must believe on Jesus. Does not this make it plain? You must believe in the Jesus that is and not the Jesus you want. Salvation comes by believing in Christ, not by believing in your Christ. The incarnation, the humiliation, the exaltation of our Lord are critical, we see this morning, Not only for our salvation, not only for proper worship and adoration of our Lord, understanding these things is as practical as our being unified and humbly serving and caring for one another. Verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Once again in our text, we have a single and simple command with a host of modifiers surrounding it. You remember 1, 27 through 30. Single command, extensive modifiers surrounding that single command. 2, 1 through 4, same thing. Single command, although the English obscures things, there's a single command in 2, 1 through 4. 
And all those other things that look like commands are participial modifiers. There are other phrases telling you how to obey that one command or what obedience to that one command looks like. Same thing now with verse 5. There's the single command and everything else is is a modifier. And remember, Paul does something quite unique in this letter to the Philippians. Paul's standard MO is doctrine first, then discipleship. Orthodoxy, then orthopraxy. Right thinking, then right living. Theology, then ethics. You can almost divide Paul's letters again and again in half by that very template. But with Philippians, when you come to the body of his letter, he opens with a command. And now we're seeing command follows command follows command. But just because Paul opens with a command doesn't mean he's denying or, or assuming an important any kind of doctrinal foundation for these commands. Just the opposite. The theology is assumed. Paul's commands still come with deep theological underpinnings. And that's obvious from the first command. Verse 27. Better translation in my opinion would be something of... The effect of live as heavenly citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. If you're to do the ethical portion of that, there's a theological element that must be understood or you cannot obey the command. You have to know something of the gospel to live a life that is becoming of the gospel. The second command is a consequence of that first. You see, if they live as heavenly citizens worthy of the gospel, so, 2 and verse 1, and you get to the command in in verse 2, but so, therefore, complete my joy being of the same mind. Now that that is a consequence is not only showed by the word so, but if they obey the command to live as heavenly citizens worthy of the gospel, Paul said the result will be that he hears that they are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And now he comes back to that. So therefore, consequence of Living as heavenly citizens worthy of the gospel is to be of one mind. Now this third commandment you see is just teasing out further the second command. First command, live as heavenly citizens worthy of the gospel. Result, Paul will hear that they're standing firm, striving side by side with one mind for the faith of the gospel. Consequence of that first command is... Be of the same mind. How are they to be of the same mind? Having the same love. Be of the same mind. Doing nothing from selfish ambition. Have the, be of the same mind. Counting others more significant than yourselves. And now the third command. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now in considering this command, we do have to be aware of two possible readings, two translations. You've got the alternate as a footnote in the ESV. So instead of have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, it could be have this mind among yourselves 
which was also in Christ Jesus. The majority of translations, good translations, follow the ESV footnote at this point. Christian standard, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, New American Standard. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And so the question is, are we simply being called to imitate Christ? Or beyond, with that established, are we beyond that being called to imitate Christ because we have the mind of Christ? It's a difficult text to deal with. And there's no argument that I've seen that settles the matter which way it should go. But theologically, we understand this, both are true. If Paul is simply saying, imitate Christ, he's speaking to people that he's already said, you are saints in Christ Jesus, 1 in verse 1. You are set apart, you are distinct as you are in union with Christ. And it's only as you are then in union with Christ that he would call upon them to have the mind of Christ. would be an impossibility otherwise. As Luther said, it is not imitation that makes us children. It's being children that enables us to imitate. The only way we can have the mind that we see modeled by our Lord in this text is because we have the mind of Christ. As 1 Corinthians 2 says, we have the mind of Christ. Now, it's true in that context. It's referring to the idea of illumination or spiritual understanding of God's revelation and His truth. Discernment in that regard. But nonetheless, by the Spirit, you are put into union with Christ. You have the mind of Christ. And it's only thereby that you can imitate Christ. The only way you can set your mind on the things that are above, as you're commanded on, in Colossians chapter 3, is because you've been raised with Christ and seated in the heavenly places with Him. Think of the things where you are. It's the way that command comes. So the mind we are to have here is Christ's mind. And whatever the proper translation then of verse 5 is, the only way we can imitate Christ's attitude is mind in this regard is because we have it as the Spirit puts us into union with Christ. And further, this command is given to the church as a body. The command is plural. You, not singular as individuals, though that would be true, but you have the mind of Christ. And so, in effect, what Paul has said is, you're the body of Christ. Christ is the head. So let the head be in your head. It says Paul begins to think of the mind of Christ and how Christ illustrates this command that then he's caught up and gets carried up into the truth of Christ. As we walk forward through this mystery, I think you'll find it critical to remember that Paul's concern here is ethical not metaphysical. The language, the the truth here will deal with metaphysical realities. 
God taking flesh. But the language itself often is not meant to convey technical data concerning how that happens, but an ethical point to be gleaned from what happened. And that'll keep you from getting crazy. From making some irreverent steps on this holy ground. John Frame reminds us that Jesus' self-humbling as spoken of here concerns an ethical point. He says, not a metaphysical one. And so we begin, contrary to the Ebionites, the adoptionists, and the Arians, with the pre-existent Christ. Who, though He was in the form of God, before He became, He was. Prior to His incarnation, Jesus was in the form of God. Eternally God. Now some might try to play philosophical with the word form. As though that meant that He was something less than God. He just had a kind of appearance like God. Or He was similar to God. I think there are at least three problems I can see with that quickly here. First... Being in the form of God assumes equality with God. Being though he was, uh, he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. The idea is not that he had something like God and didn't want to go higher. The point is, He was in the form of God, and being equal to God, he didn't count that something to exploit or leverage selfishly. That's the plain sense of the language. And then second, being in the form of God is a reality in exactly the same way that being in the form of a servant is. If you deny Jesus' divinity in verse 6 you then have to deny His humanity in verse 7. He's in the form of God in exactly the same way that He was in the form of a servant. And so if you affirm He took the form of a servant, meaning He was man, form of a servant equals man, you have to then acknowledge that being in the form of God means He was God. And third... You need to interpret the Bible and its language by its own internal dictionary and not some alien one that you bring to it from philosophical kind of ideas and terms such as Aristotle and his ideas of forms and such and impose that into the Scriptures. So how do you understand what this language is saying? Well, you understand it in light of John 1. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. Shortly, John goes on to tell us that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. To understand what Paul is getting at, and I think the way he's laid this out, he he means for us to go here. Contrast now the second Adam with the first Adam. If you're unfamiliar with that language, spend the afternoon with uh, with Romans chapter 5. 
all of humanity is organized under two federal heads. You are either in Adam or you are in Christ. The first Adam, a head of old humanity, or the second Adam, the head of new humanity. Now, the first Adam was merely made in the image of God, and he grasped after Godlikeness. The second Adam was God, and he humbled himself to take on human likeness. In the first Adam, we see pride and selfishness. In the second, humility, self-sacrifice. That's the point of the language here in verse 6. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count that as something to be exploited, leveraged for himself, but envied himself. So in man, we see a pride to be God. And in God, the humility to become man. The pre-existent Christ then we see here dwelt as it were eternally in the happy land of the Trinity. The de- mutual delight of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in one another. But then he voluntarily emptied himself. What does that mean? And here the kenotic theorist, you might hear it said the kenosis theory, will tell us that Jesus emptied himself of his divinity. So one collection of heresies says that the pre-existent Christ wasn't divine. And a second collection of heresies says that the incarnate Christ ceased to be divine or was less divine. What is intended by emptying himself is made plain by the two parallel phrases that follow explaining it. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men, verse 7. Emptying himself is in contrast to not grasping The point is that Jesus, again, didn't exploit. He didn't try to leverage this for himself, but took the form of a servant. The point is not that Jesus emptied himself of something. The point is that Jesus emptied himself as someone, as a person. He poured himself out. That's the idea in taking the form of a servant. Jesus, note, he emptied himself by taking The incarnation, the humiliation of our Lord is not an issue of subtraction, but addition. He did not empty Himself by becoming less God. He'd emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant. So the Cappadocian father Gregory Naziazin put it famously, What he was, he continued to be. What he was not, he took to himself. Or as is often put today, remaining what he was, he became what he was not. What Jesus does and did in emptying himself is akin to what Jesus did in the upper room when he took off his outer garments. 
and took the towel and began to wash the disciples' feet. When Jesus in that instance took the form of a servant, He didn't become subhuman. He didn't become less human. Who He was didn't change. Whenever Peter objected to Jesus' washing his feet, what Peter fundamentally failed to recognize in that moment was how low Jesus had already stooped and his taking the towel to wash their feet was an expression of the humiliation that they had had the grace to display all those years that they had walked with Him. Whenever we take up the subject of the incarnation of our Lord, we have to deal with the doctrine of what is called the hypostatic union. That's the union of two natures in one person. The divine nature and a human nature united in the one person, Jesus Christ. See, in the Trinity, we have three persons with one nature or substance, or essence. In the person of Christ, we have one person with two natures, divine nature and a human nature. And what's important as we look at these things is we, under, we, we need to understand that it's the person, Jesus, being spoken of here, who empties Himself. We're not told that the divine nature of Jesus emptied Himself. But the person, Jesus, emptied Himself, poured Himself out. Burkhoff is very clarifying here. He says, It is well to stress the fact that the incarnation was a personal act. It is better to say that the person of the Son of God became incarnate than to say that the divine nature assumed human flesh. The divine nature didn't assume human flesh. The person assumed human flesh. And so the Chalcedonian Creed tells us that Jesus is truly God and truly man. We discussed this last night as a family. While I understand what people mean whenever they say that He's 100% God and 100% man, it doesn't add up. Jesus' divine nature is 100% divine and 0% man. And Jesus' human nature is 100% human and 0% divine. And Jesus is mysteriously one person but with two natures. The Chalcedonian Creed tells us, goes on to say, that these two natures remain without confusion, without change. They're they're not confused, they're not mixed. There's no Frankenstein Jesus, part human, part divine, something new. They're without confusion, they're without change. The human nature remains a human nature. The divine nature remains a divine nature. They're without confusion, they're without change, without division, without separation. The distinction 
of natures in no way being annulled by the union. They're put together and their distinction isn't done away with. The human nature is human. The divine nature is human. The distinction's there, but rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved. These two distinct natures now inseparably unified in one person. Now, everything we've just went through right there has been largely a fence to keep us from going out into the dangerous wilderness of heresy. That's not the point of our text though. We need that fence. But the point of this text is to bring us to graze in the lust green pastures of orthodoxy. Put the fence up so you know where to graze. What does it mean positively that Jesus took the form of a servant? Being born in the likeness of man. Well, first one phrase means the other. Taking is being born. And the form of a servant is the likeness of man. To be a man is to be a slave. God is our creator. We are his creation. Now have you got something of how astounding this is? For God to become man meant for the Lord to become a slave. And second, with this language of the servant of Yahweh or the slave that we have here, you're meant to recall the servant spoken of again and again throughout Isaiah 40, chapters 40 through 55. When you go to Isaiah 40 through 55, you'll see the servant spoken of again and again. And quite often the servant is clearly Israel. And she's a servant who has failed her Lord. But then alongside Israel and her failures, you read of this servant, 42, 1 through 3. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He's the Christ, the anointed one. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. The most well known of what are sometimes called the the servant songs of Isaiah is that one that we find in Isaiah 52.13 through Isaiah 53.12. Specifically, there the servant is referenced as the suffering servant. And the way things tease out in Isaiah 52, 12 and following, 13 and following, is the opposite of what we have in our text. In our text, we go from humiliation to exaltation. But Isaiah begins with his exaltation and then takes us into his humiliation. Isaiah 52, 12, 13 Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. 
Now do you see that already assumes if he's going to be exalted, what's his state from which he is exalted? Isaiah 52, 14. Let me state them both, 13 and 14. Behold, my servant shock wisely shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted as many as were astonished at you. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Why is he humbled so? Isaiah 53.15 So, by that humiliation, so shall he sprinkle many nations. As you read of Yahweh's two servants in Isaiah 40-55, as you read of these two servants, the idea of substitution and representation is inescapable. You understand that where this servant failed, the other comes to succeed in her place. In his place. And not only will the second servant obey where the first rebelled, the second servant will suffer for the disobedience of the first. Isaiah 53, 4-5, Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with His wounds we are healed. I'm getting ahead of our text at this point. I just want you to see at this point, first, that the incarnation was an act of immeasurable humiliation. Too often we only think of Christ's trial and His execution as His humiliation. His humiliation was from the incarnation to the grave. He was born in swaddling bands, but he was born with a towel in his hands. As a helpless babe, even, he was in a state of humility to serve us and wash us clean. Richard Sibbs writes God became man, he became a servant to expiate our pride in Adam. What grace that God would humble Himself to cleanse us of our pride. Because we tried to be God, God indeed became man. 2 Corinthians 8-9 For you know the Grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor. So that you by His poverty might become rich. Galatians 4, 4 and 5. 
When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive, his adoption, as receive adoption as sons. Jesus took the form of a servant coming under the law. What that means for us is made clear by Romans 5. As by the one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. The second servant comes to represent the first, obeying where they rebelled. And his obedience reaches its climactic expression as he walks willingly to the cross. To bear the wrath of his father for the sins of the elect. Verse 8. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So the incarnation not only is humiliation, the incarnation is for humiliation. He humbled himself to take on flesh that he might humble himself. Just whenever you think Christ could not possibly stoop any lower than by coming from the glories of heaven to this cursed earth, He then stoops from this cursed earth while remaining on earth yet to be plunged into hell. You can almost hear Richard Sibbs whisper with reverence as he writes, No abasement was ever so deep as Christ was in double regard. First, none ever went so low as He, for He suffered the wrath of God and bore upon Him the sins of us all. None was ever so low. And then in another respect, His abasement was greatest because He descended from the highest top of glory and for Him to be man... To be a servant, to be a curse, to suffer the wrath of God, to be the lowest of all. Lord, whither dost thou descend? And we're told Jesus does this willingly, obediently. Jesus willingly in obedience to His Father, walked as it were from the heights of glory through the virgin's womb to tread every step in obedience to His Father, fulfilling all righteousness in our stead, and then walk climactically to the cross, to Golgotha, to bear the holy hatred of His beloved Father for our rebellion. Can you hear Jesus say, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life for the sheep. I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. 
or as he anticipates drinking that cup down to its bitter dregs, resolving himself to the Father's will, saying, not my will, but yours be done. The great Scotch teacher, John Duncan, once asked his students, as he got caught up in these things, do you know what Calvary was? What? 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 It was damnation. And he took it lovingly. Yes, in all this our Lord served us, but don't you think for a second that your primary in any of this. Yes, our Lord served us. Oh, how He loved us. Yes. But He wasn't obeying us. He was obeying His Father. He was serving His Father. He obediently humbled Himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, for love of His Father. He obeyed and served supremely the Father. And the irony of ironies is that as He was bearing the Father's wrath, never more did He please the Father as He willingly and obediently took the cup to drain it. seems a shame to leave off at this point with just the humiliation of our Lord and not consider His exaltation, but it would be the greater shame to do half justice to meditating on one to try to cram in the other. Saints, I pray you're just in awe at the humiliation of our Lord. As we look to these Mysteries, though we acknowledge they are mysteries we cannot fully explain, let us also confess they are mysteries that explain. The incarnation of our Lord is not a mystery to explain, it's a mystery that explains. And what Paul is at pain here to explain is how the mystery of the incarnation of our Lord speaks to our being of the same mind and striving side by side for the gospel of Christ. Or we could say that Paul is showing us here Christ and while we cannot replicate Christ, we should imitate Christ. You cannot Live the gospel. But you can live in a way that becomes the gospel. Remember the contention I made with verse 27 that living a life worthy of the gospel means living a gospel-shaped life. Do you now see it come full and plain here? The gospel not only gives you life, the gospel shapes the banks in which that life is to flow. It tells you what obedience looks like. 
living as a heavenly citizen, worthy of the gospel of Christ, means our striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And this striving side by side means I have a concern for my brother, not that terminates on my brother himself, but the cause of the gospel and the cause of Christ as it relates to my brother. Richard Sibbs said, Shall we think ourselves too good for any service? Who for shame can be proud when he thinks of this that God was abased? Shall God be abased and man proud? Shall God become a servant and shall we that are servants think much to serve our fellow servants? Let us learn this lesson to abase ourselves. We cannot have a better pattern to look unto than our blessed Savior. A Christian is the greatest freeman in the world. He is free from the wrath of God, free from hell and damnation, from the curse of the law. But then, though he be free in these respects, yet in regard of love, he is the greatest servant. And so whenever you look at your brother, and you think it's so hard to serve him, because he seems so sinful, because he is so sinful, Ask yourself, can you not serve your Lord in serving Him? Can you not serve your Lord who so served you, even though you are so sinful that the only thing that could deal with your sin was the Son of God humbling Himself to take on flesh that He might humble Himself to bear God's wrath for sin. Have your eyes to Christ as Christ had His eyes to the Father in serving one another to the glory of the Father and the Son, the Spirit. Make it your zeal to live as heavenly citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. And you will find the second command to be of the same mind, to strive side by side, to count others more significant than yourselves. You will find that command then falls easily into place. Let's pray. Father, by your blessed word and your spirit, so our eyes are being opened to behold something, the, your glory in the face of Christ. Conform us to his image as we behold. As we behold, may we become. As we look at Christ and His humiliation, may it humble us in such a way that we are then exalted to look like Jesus. May we live worthy of the gospel of Christ by living gospel-shaped lives.
for the cause of the gospel in the body of Christ. Father, we ask this in the strong and blessed name of Jesus in whom you tell us every promise is yes and amen with faith and confidence. Having looked at his obedience. In his name we pray. Amen.